sorry. I miss, I miss you. Yes, you. I we miss saw each other. You. We did see each other. We did. We did. You surprised me. We, I surprised you, <sighs> and it was great. It was great. It was. It was good. I. I. I surprised you, and it was good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Literally walking time. in, just go, just screaming. Did you see the irritated looks I got from people? No, I was setting up drums, so I I wasn't. I didn't think you did, and then it was all eyes on us because hello. But um, I screamed at the top of my lungs. I quoted that line from Borat where he's like, "My wife," because Elliot doesn't know this, but you're my wife. We we married you, you and me. Elliot 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 didn't know this, (laughs) but actually, if he looks real close at the marriage license, we gave him a decoy. Um, but. Yeah, and we we is you and I, which is we is Haley and yeah. <laughs> Grammar is out the window because I worked like ten days straight because Black Friday. Yep. Um, but we are, uh, crime culture. Yep. I am Caitlin. You are. You are my wife, Haley. and and that yes. Hey. Um, you're Haley. And uh, before we start, we got a fun one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Before we start, I want to thank absolutely every single person that posted about their Spotify rap. Yes, that was adorable, and I loved it. And thank you so, 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 so very much. Really, it's been such a delight and such a like. Oh, they're coming for me. Um, I don't know if you can hear the sirens, but they are. I hear it now. They're on their way. Um, it's been very like just I don't want to say heartwarming. It's heartwarming. It is, but that's not the word that I'm looking for, I guess, is more okay. what it is. Because it's just like, oh, like, you really think think that much of this <laughs> you podcast? You really like us. You like us. You really like <laughs> us. Um, but yeah, but thank you so much. Like, this is, this is just something that we do because we enjoy it, and we're glad that you also enjoy it. Yeah. And we're coming up on an oh anniversary yeah. in April. Five years. What you buying me? <laughs> What is the five-year anniversary? I, I feel like five I should year know. Five-year anniversary gift is... They're going to be like a podcast recording. It's like, perfect. I know what to get you. It's wood. It wood. Ooh, what kind of wood? Hmm? I don't fucking know. Coffin. <laughs> <laughs> Haley's going to kill me for our anniversary. That's Coffins our, are fucking expensive that's our, shit. That's I'm our five-year special. That's our five-year special is... Haley's gonna kill me live yep. in a real investigative way. I'd be like, "Yep, here we go." Oh God. Um. Well, you know, this episode is about killing. Most of most our of our episodes are about yeah. killing. As it's I said, a true crime I was, podcast. I was like, unlike our other episodes that are about you know unicorns and puppies. Um. No, no, this we did one, the bling ring. That one wasn't about killing. We did the bling ring. We did DUIs, which yeah, are somewhat yeah. not about killing. There was some, but not all. In a perfect world, they wouldn't uh, yeah. kill anybody. In but, a perfect um, world, we wouldn't we wouldn't do a DUI. But yeah, I mean, it happens. And listen to that one if you want to learn more about that, because it is that time. December is. Um, Oh, I can't, I can't get the, ex- it's a long phrase, but basically Prevention it's a, of DUIs it's a, it's, month or something? Yeah, it's like national, national driving under the influence or driving while impaired month, anti-prevention month or something yeah. like that. So don't do that. That would be really cool. That'd be really chill. Um, and yeah. Uh, and you know what so every month is. This one's about is. killing. You know what every, but uh, that's what I was going to say. You know what every national month is what don't fucking kill month it's just it's yeah. don't do it but this is a good fuck around find out do not kill episode and it's actually on one of england's most prolific serial killers not mm. jack the ripper but well obviously because you're reading the title right now Haley isn't yeah. but um john reginald christie aka the monster of rillington place or also known as the milk toast murderer. Oh, not okay. no. And I knew the minute that I said that that you were gonna huh. Milk toast means like demure. It's like it's like you're a wallflower, or mm. um like you're you're like a little you're like a little mouse. Like you're 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 quiet and you're okay. like people don't look at you and go moita. 
they just they look at you and they go oh i don't that I, I don't notice you i don't yeah. see you you're nothing okay. um so the 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 lord of all nothing john reginald halliday christie was born on april 8th 1899 in black boy house a former inn at Northorim, Halifax, Yorkshire. Kim? Kim says I'm, Kim says I'm right. Um, as the sixth of seven children of Mary Hannah Holiday Christie and Ernest John Christie. And he spent the next 20 years of his life in and around his hometown. Um, he was known by the nickname reg to his family and friends mm-hmm. and grew up in a household largely dominated by his stern and unaffectionate parents uh his dad was a huge disciplinarian and his mom and his sisters were very overprotective uh which of course did wonders for his psyche as we'll get into and one critical moment that frankly fucked him up as a kid uh was the death of his grandfather um Christie later said that upon seeing his grandfather's body laid out on the table in the casket, uh, it was an open casket sort of thing, seeing his dead body made him, gave him this feeling of power because Mm -hmm. this man that he was once terrified of was now nothing more than a corpse. Mm. Like, harmless, can't do anything to me now. Mm -hmm. So, as a child... Christie was also a choir boy and a King's Scout, which is the highest rank in the Boy Scouts. But despite being like involved in activities and whatnot, he was very socially isolated. Um, He was shy. He really kept to himself. He wasn't popular among his peers who later remembered him as a, quote, queer lad, end quote. Um, However, he was considered to be quite bright. He had an IQ of 128 Whoa. Which, yeah, that put him in the smartest 5% of the nation. Damn. And at the age of 11, he won a scholarship to Halifax Secondary School, where he particularly excelled at math. Mm. Now, if there's one thing I've learned, is that math is the root of all evil. And so, therefore, True. the fact that he excelled at math is no surprise. Because, say it with me, kids, pretty people don't do math. Unless mm-hmm. you're, like, good at it and you enjoy it. But for the most part, like, we don't have to do math. We do not have to do math. If you're listening to this podcast, you're Calculators a pretty person. Exist. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And people who do math exist. So they can do it for you. Um, I've never been in a situation at my job where I couldn't pull out a calculator. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. They, they made it seem like all the calculators would go away once yes. you hit, like, 22. Yes. But they lied to you. The number of times that I had a teacher be like... This won't fly in college. I'm like, bitch, people are coming in like the dress they wore clubbing last night to their 8 a.m. What do you mean? This is the calculators is where they're going to draw the line. No, no. And let me tell you something. I didn't even take math in college. I took a goddamn fucking CLEP exam at the local community college. One hour of my life wasted. And then I never had to do math again because it counted for college credit. Incredible. Teens borderline almost college or current college students if you too suffer from math or science suffer from math suffer from math um hit hit me up hit me up i could tell you how to take a club exam um because they're super fucking easy and nobody talks about them and it also saves you you don't have to pay to take a college course it's like 50 bucks 80 bucks something like that you take it you're you don't have to take that course and your gpa doesn't get nuked uh we're not getting sponsored so move (laughs) along here (laughs) the college board is sponsoring us um, yeah. I'm going to give y'all, I'm going to give y'all a warning now. I did not Uh-oh. take my legal meth today and therefore train of thought, not on the tracks. No, she, Left she, station, do be, she do be know. running. I don't know if she's even at the station. I don't know if she ever made it. She could be, she could be in Halifax by now. We don't really know, but this is all to say math is the root of all evil. However, Christy dropped out of the Halifax Secondary School at the age of 15 and soon after. Some sources said that it was like right when the war started, which would have been when he was about 15. Others said it was when he was 17. Others said he was 17 and a half, which like, as we all know, if you're young, then you're like that half counts. It does. Um, But either way, after World War II began, World War I, excuse me, began, um, he enlisted in the army and he served as an infantryman in the 52nd, nottinghamshire and derbyshire regiment 
and later served as a signalman for the Duke of Wellington's West Riding Regiment. However, during this service, he was injured by a mustard gas attack while serving in France in June 1918, and he was hospitalized for five months, during which he was temporary, temporarily blinded oh, God. and lost the ability to speak. Uh, he said that afterwards, he was unable to talk much louder than a whisper, hence the nickname The Milk Toast Murderer. Okay. So he claimed that this caused this hysterical muteness that lasted over three years, and then he couldn't speak above a whisper. However, his biographers have since suggested that his inability to talk loudly, loudly was a result of the injuries that he was not as a result of the injuries that he sustained. But actually, it was a psychological reaction to what happened rather okay. than a physical one. Um, and then suggested others have suggested that his loss of speech was actually just a way to gain attention. Um, mm. So either way, Christie was demobilized from the army on October 22nd, 1919. But then he joined the Royal Air Force on December 13th, 1923, before being discharged on August 15th, 1924. So, He's really trying to serve his country. Yeah. Um, well, we'll get into that because he could not hold down a job to save his goddamn motherfucking life. And that's so crazy because, like, he seems like he was so smart. He could probably, like, do anything. And he did. He he really, he hella did because, like, at one point he was a cop. He worked in the mail, like, at the post office. He, like, he he did so fucking... He any job, any job, but he could not hold one down. And to the point that he even got caught stealing from his father's carpet factory, at which point his family disowned him. He lost the job wow. at the carpet factory and he lost the family. Damn. Yes. Um, but speaking of the family, because of his fucked up upbringing, which I referenced earlier, he grew up to be a sexually dysfunctional, control obsessed hypochondriac with an inherent dislike of women. Ah, oh, you're the best kind. Try saying that three times fast. But that precluded any normal sexual activity. Uh, psychologists later theorized that on top of his experiences with the women in his family, that Christie further formed a hatred and dread of women after being bullied during his teenage years about being sexually inadequate. And so, in fact, he later claimed, quote, all my life I've had this fear of appearing ridiculous as a lover, end quote. So at the age of 19, um, the he so he started patronizing sex workers when he was 19 years old because mm -hmm. that was the only time that he could get over his erectile dysfunction and perform properly ah uh, something you should probably go to therapy over right the, i feel like our podcast would have ended a long time ago had people just gone to therapy if you're listening yeah. to this go to therapy yeah just if you think something might be uh off like that just you know if anything do a little do a little bit of a check-in. Yeah. Yeah. See a therapist. Don't go to better health. Better help or better health? Um, I don't know. Health. If don't it works go. for you, if it works for you, yes, then definitely fair. do it. That's fair. Just However, have, no. Yeah. Have uh, uh, different expectations going in. Mm -hmm. Just be aware. Know that they, for example, do. there are people who are life coaches that say that they are therapists and they are but a life coach. Um, but yeah. Anyway, enough about them. Back on the train. His muteness did not, however, prevent him from getting married at the age of 21. And on May 19th, 1920, he married 21-year-old, which my notes I typoed here, 221-year-old. Oh, um, God. He, li he likes an older woman. Um, no, 21-year-old Ethel Simpson Waddington at the Ethel. register office in Halifax. It's 1920. Yeah. Ethel was there's like got, the Britney of the twenties. There's bound to be an Ethel in the story. There's gotta be. Um, so Ethel was from Halifax, and that's where they moved into a house after they got married. However, Christie's difficulties in the bedroom remained. Um, he continued to visit sex workers regularly after he got married. And it has also been claimed that Ethel teased him about his inability to um get it up. And neighbors would gossip about her staying with him only because she was afraid of him. Ooh. Yeah. So real healthy, real healthy. And during this healthy marriage, Christie was also convicted of several crimes, including stealing from the Halifax post office where he worked, 
and then, you know, did not work. Um, uh-huh. Obtaining money under false pretenses, violent conduct, larceny, assaulting a sex worker who he hit over the head with a cricket bat. Which Oh, Jesus. Yes. Why is that in the bedroom? Yep. Magistrates described that as a, quote, murderous attack, which, wow, nothing gets past them. Um, he was also Where convicted. Where did he get the bat from? <laughs> I'll, we'll get into that because he liked some shit. Um, oh. He was also convicted of stealing a car from a priest. Well, you're not going to want to do that. He was friends with the priest. That not was, anymore. That was the first mistake. Yeah. So then after he was released from prison, he reconciled with Ethel in late 1933, but their relationship soon suffered more difficulties when Ethel had a miscarriage. Ooh. So he ended up leaving her and moved to London and left her to support herself in Sheffield. And by the time Christie was 29 years old, he was back in prison on theft charges, spent nine months incarcerated before moving in with a sex worker, at which point he was sentenced to a further six months for assaulting her. And then he was also suspected of other assaults on women, but no charges were brought forth for those. And then finally, after he stole the car from the priest, he asked Ethel to come home and live with him in London, which she did in 1933. Wow. What a, what a life he's already had. Yes. So that's some background. Um, so despite the couple's reconciliation, like, again, she had this miscarriage. Christie continued to seek out sex workers to relieve his sexual urges, which were becoming increasingly violent. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, they included elements of necrophilia, and these urges only intensified over Ugh. the next decade. Um, He also had several affairs, including one with a woman at the police station where he worked. And as a result, Christy got his ass kicked after her husband found out. Mm. And in 1938, so four years after he reconciled with Ethel, Christy and his wife moved into the ground floor apartment of 10 Rillington Place in the Ladbroke Grove neighborhood of Notting Hill in London. I, I recognize that address. Yes. At the time, it was not known for the Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts movie. Instead, it was known for slum housing. Also, yes, you did hear that right. Those sirens did stop right outside my apartment. I don't want to know. Um, They'll be knocking at the door momentarily. <laughs> I'm going to. They're, they're coming for me. I'm telling you. So they moved in to the ground floor apartment. And Notting Hill has since become one of West London's most affluent neighborhoods but at the time it was like not a good spot so he continued to patronize sex workers after they moved to notting hill and continued to escalate and then in 1943 christie's first known victim was one of his mistresses ruth first i believe is how you pronounce it f-u-e-r-s-t who was a 21-year-old munitions worker from austria who also supplemented her income by occasionally working as a sex work worker i don't know why i said that weird but fine um so christy claimed that the two met while she was soliciting clients at a snack bar in ladbroke grove and according to his own account the two were having sex at his home while ethel was away visiting relatives on august 24th when he impulsively strangled first to death he then buried her body under the floorboards in their living room before moving her to a hole in the garden at Rillington Place the following evening. It was a communal garden. Um, uh, not the smartest idea, but... But know. he did it. He done did that. All righty then. And Christy later said of First's murder, quote, I remember as I gazed down at the still form of my first victim experiencing a strange and peaceful thrill, end quote. That's not a, that's not a good sign. I don't love that. So then at the end of 1943, Christie resigned as a special police constable, and the following year he found a new job as a clerk at an Acton radio factory. There, he met his second victim, a colleague and neighbor named Muriel Amelia Eady, who was 32 years old. And after doing a fair amount of planning on October 7th, 1944, he invited Eady back to his flat with the promise that he had concocted this, quote, special mixture that when used with a, quote, special inhaler, could cure her recurring bronchitis. So He's just like some guy, though. Like, you expect just some random guy to fucking do chemistry like that? He's her friend, and this is why we are careful about who we be friends. Just don't be friends with anybody. Yeah, that's the point. Haley, this, this no. is the end of the road. <laughs> 
Oh, no, we're, we're <laughs> colleagues. Oh, okay. 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 That's fair. That's fair. All right. Anyway, colleague. So okay. this special inhaler, I'll give you one guess. What do you think's in it? Fucking roofie or some fucking chloroform. We're very close. It's carbon monoxide. Oh, God. So once- I was thinking too far out of the box. <laughs> You were thinking in today times, not in 1944 times, but that's okay. Um, But once she was knocked unconscious, um, Christy strangled Edie to death while raping her, after which she was buried next to first in the garden. And as it turned out, Christy found that he liked to keep the bodies close to him in his remember he's on the ground floor so he can just walk right out there um which was a characteristic that is common to many necrophiliacs which at this point christy was yes so then we get to easter 1948 at which point a truck driver named timothy evans and his wife beryl moved into the top floor flat at rillington place and soon after beryl gave birth to a baby girl named geraldine oh no so here's the thing about Timothy is he had an IQ of 70. The average is considered to be 100. So he was very impressionable and easily manipulated. He was also illiterate and he had a violent temper. Um, mm. And his learning difficulties made it difficult for him to hold a steady job. So when Beryl found herself pregnant again a year later in 1949, she feared that they weren't going to be able to support another child. Mm. So she was discussing this with Christy, her neighbor, and he claimed he knew how to perform abortions, which at the time were illegal in the UK, and offered to help them out. So on November 8th, 1948, I guess this isn't a year later, but you know what I mean, um, he gassed, raped, and strangled Beryl to death, just like he did all of his other victims. But then he convinced Timothy not to go to the police by telling him that Beryl had died from sepsis from the variety of other abortion remedies that she had previously tried. Mm, Okay. So instead, Timothy was sent to stay with his mother, his mother's sister in Wales, while Christy claimed that he had found a young couple who was willing to take in baby Geraldine. Oh, God. Geraldine was never seen alive again, and while Christy never admitted to it, it is believed he murdered her as well. Mm. Confused by this mysterious disappearance of her daughter-in-law and her grandchild, Timothy's mother confronted him, and on November 30th, 1949, he was unable to maintain the charade any longer and went to the police in Murder Tideville, which is in Wales, and I hope I pronounced it right. Um, So he turned himself in hoping to protect Christy, who in his eyes had done him a real solid by trying to help his wife. Yeah. And it didn't work out and he didn't think it was fair for him to, to you know what I mean? Wow. So yeah, he, he really just fell on his sword for him. He confessed to accidentally killing Beryl himself saying that he gave her, gave her abortion pills and then he disposed of her body in a sewer drain. So the police looked into this, found nothing in any sewer drains And so then they questioned Timothy a second time, more intensely, at which point he changed his story and said that Christy was involved in Beryl's death. Mm. So they searched Christy's flat and garden, but they made a fuck ton of mistakes. They ended up doing two searches. Um, For example, their first search, they did not find any bodies but not only that, they also failed to notice the human bones propping up Christie's backyard fence. Oh, my God. There's yeah. at least two bodies back there. Yes. They also ignored evidence provided by builders working at Rillington Place that proved that Timothy was innocent. They did not include it in their reports. They furthermore, Christie later admitted that his dog had dug up Edie's skull in the garden shortly after these police searches, at which point he threw the skull into an abandoned, bombed-out house in nearby St. Mark's Road. Uh, uh, What is happening? Yep. There was also no systematic search. Yeah, oh, you're gonna... Whoa, just wait. There was no systematic search made of the crime scene, so any other human remains that could have been found and pointed to Christy as the perpetrator, there was no way of finding them. They didn't have, like, a plan. And so... 
they just fucking went by the seats of their fucking pants. Oh my god! And during the second search on December 2nd, police discovered the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine, as well as a 16-week male fetus hidden in the outdoor wash house in the back garden, which apparently is like a shed. Yeah. Um, and Beryl's body had been wrapped up in a blanket twice, or wrapped up twice, first in a blanket and then in a tablecloth. Okay. And then the postmortem revealed that Beryl showed signs of facial bruising that indicated she had been physically assaulted before her murder, and that both Beryl and Geraldine had been strangled. Mm. In fact, the men's tie that Geraldine had been strangled with was still around her neck when her body was found. Wow. So upon further questioning, because Christie had once been a former war reserve policeman, the police saw him as like one of them. Oh, and Lord took all of his statements as fact without any major scrutiny, despite the fact that Christie was the one with the criminal record with convictions for theft and malicious wounding, while Timothy had no prior convictions for violence. In fact, Christie was also used as the key witness in Timothy's trial. That's... For... Yeah, I know. Insanity. I know. And shockingly, Christie convinced his wife, Ethel, to back up his lies about the killings and she also testified against timothy wow meanwhile timothy claimed first that christy had killed his wife in a botched abortion but the police questioning eventually produced a confession in which he changed his story several more times including that he strangled his wife over them being in a lot of debt However, it's believed that these confessions all were coerced as a result of Timothy's limited mental faculties and also the intensity of the continuous police interrogations. Um, In fact, it's also been suspected that the police completely fabricated the confession and that Timothy didn't suspect or didn't admit to a thing. Yeah. Um, Not only were the words in his confession, like, quite frankly, too, like, intellectual for him to have known and used properly... But investigators also showed him the clothes of his wife and baby and revealed that they had been found in the wash house as opposed to interrogating him until he told them where the bodies had been hidden. And up until that point, he was like, they're in a sewer drain. Yeah. Which is not where they were. No. After being charged, Timothy withdrew his confession. Once again, he accused Christy, this time of both the murders of his wife and daughter, um, but when he went to trial on January 11th, 1950, his defense team was incompetent and they failed to follow up on a number of blatant inconsistencies in his confessions. For example, over the series of interviews, again, he gave four different confessions. Mm-hmm. None of them correctly stated where the bodies were. Yeah. And also they had the testimonies by Chris, by the Christie's. So John Christie's testimony was instrumental in Timothy being found guilty of Beryl's murder and sentenced to death, despite Timothy continuously maintaining his innocence and even attempting an appeal because he was sentenced to death on and the appeal went like he did the appeal on February 20th. It was denied. So he was hanged at HM prison, Pentonville, on March 9th, 1950, for, I misspoke earlier, for the murder of his daughter. Okay. But it was like, okay, he murdered his wife and his daughter, but we're going to try him for his daughter. Mm. Um. So at the time of Timothy's trial, Christie had found a job at the post office savings bank on May 21st, 1946, as a grade two clerk and worked at Q, K-E-W. But then he was fired on April 4th, 1950, after it was learned he had failed to disclose his criminal record. Mm. Meanwhile, his hypochondria was growing progressively worse. He became depressed and was therefore finding it difficult to maintain a job over the next few years. And his paranoia was getting worse. So during the the early 1950s, he successfully negotiated with the Poor Man's Lawyer Center to have exclusive use of Rillington Place's back garden, despite not being the only occupant of the building. That's bullshit. It's bullshit. But also, remember, like, he said he wanted to claim, dis- he wa- or he he said he wanted to get distance from his neighbors, but actually his motivation was to prevent said neighbors from discovering the human remains he had buried in the garden because they well, already found two bodies. Yeah, but the fucking cops couldn't find fucking fuck all bones that were just like left out so like he didn't want to chance it he didn't want to go he didn't you know the postman yeah. rings twice or whatever that saying is 
Um, but yeah. So then, meanwhile, on December 12th, 1952, Ethel mysteriously disappears. Christy Is told it the mysterious? neighbors. Mm, you tell me. Doesn't sound like it's going to be. <laughs> no. Uh, Christy told the neighbors that she had gone back to Sheffield while he told their relatives that she had become too ill to communicate with them. However, he would continue to send them gifts marked as coming from both of them. Okay. In actuality, on the morning of December 14th, 1952, Christy strangled Ethel to death with a stocking in their bed. According to his later confessions, Christy told the authorities, quote, I'll tell you as much as I can remember. I have not been well for a long time, about 18 months. My wife has been suffering a great deal from persecution and assaults from the black people in the house 10 Rillington Place and had to undergo treatment at the doctor for nerves. In December, she was becoming very frightened from these blacks and was afraid to go about the house when they were about, and she got very depressed. On December 14th, I was awakened by my, my, by my wife moving about in bed. I sat up and saw that she appeared to, have con to be convulsive. Her face was blue and she was choking. I did what I could to try to restore breathing, but it was hopeless. She appeared, it appeared too late to call for assistance. That's when I couldn't bear to see her. So I got a stocking and tied it around her neck to put her to sleep. But then I got out of bed and saw a small bottle and a cup full of water on a small table near the bed. I noticed that the bottle contained two phenol barbitone tablets and it originally contained 25. I then knew that she must have taken the remainder. I got them from the hospital because I couldn't sleep. I left her in bed for two or three days and didn't know what to do. But then I remembered some loose floorboards in the front room. But I had to move a table and some chairs to roll back the lino about halfway. Those boards had previously been up because of the drainage system. There were several of these depressions under the floorboards. Then I believe I went back and put her in a blanket or a sheet or something and tried to carry her, but she was too heavy, so I had to sort of half carry and half drag her and put her in that depression and cover her up with earth. I thought that was the best way to lay her to rest, end quote. There's a lot going a on lot here. happening there. The first reaction I would have to a partner who was uh, struggling breathing or having a... Uh, any type of medical distress would be to tie a stocking around their neck and just, you know what? Let me just finish them off. Yeah. Well, and it's also, they don't know that that even happened. Um, they don't know what his motivation actually was. They don't know if he was telling the truth. They don't know if that story is at all what happened, except for the fact that like, for example, he was like, those boards had previously been up because of the drainage system. Okay. Well then why did you hide first spotty there? Yeah. Like, what? No. Yeah. Um, there are theories that he could have done it for financial gain. But again, this is not known for for certain. But, and also, like, let's not forget, it was rumored that she made fun of his impotence. Yeah. Um, but as his wife's body remained under the floor, Christy began treating the house with strong disinfectants as neighbors remarked on the growing terrible odors that were coming from the Christie house, which is making me think more and more of Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. He also sold Ethel's jewelry and then went and forged her signature and emptied her bank accounts. Uh, yeah, that doesn't sound like a person who's like in mourning. Yeah. So Ethel's murder. Well, and also he was sending relatives gifts from them. Yeah. Signed to be from them. Yeah. But Ethel's murder left Christie free to prepare for his future murders in their now empty home, where he began keeping a piece of rope, double knotted at each end, hidden away in a toolbox. Mm. He then went on a killing spree between January 19th and March 6th, 1953, during which he murdered three more women. Christie's sixth known victim was 25-year-old Rita Nelson, a six-months pregnant sex worker from Belfast who was visiting her sister in Ladbroke Grove. Like Beryl Evans, Christie convinced her that he could help her with an abortion on January 19th. Um, he gassed and then strangled her while she was tied to a kitchen chair before he headed off to bed. And the next morning, he went to the kitchen and enjoyed a cup of tea with Nelson's corpse still in the chair before hiding huh. her body in an alcove behind a cupboard in the kitchen after he finished his tea. Yeah, lots of this sounds very Jeffrey Dahmerish. Yes. So then around the time of his wife's murder, 
Christy also met a down-on-her-luck woman named Kathleen Maloney, who was a 26-year-old cleaner, laundress, and sex worker from the Ladbroke Grove area. Uh, He met her while she was at a pub with her friend Maureen Briggs. Uh, Maloney drank heavily. She had frequently been arrested for both sex work and being drunk and disorderly. And according to Jonathan Oates's 2013 book, John Christie of Rillington Place, Biography of a Serial Killer, which has a three point or yes, three point eight three out of five on Goodreads, quote, in September 1952, Kathleen hitchhiked to London because she was, quote, fed up because the police were always chasing her, end quote. Mm. And relatives had turned their backs on her. They were ignoring her letters when she asked to stay with them. So she was alone and very much in need um at one point she was so desperate that she was found sleeping in the public toilets Mm. and after they had run into each other a few times christy paid maloney and briggs to do a nude photo shoot during which christy first photographed them but then took off his own clothes and asked maloney to take photos of himself and briggs naked together and then he gave them a pound each okay so the following month The women saw him and asked him to take more photos for money, but he said no. He later claimed, quote, it was little Kathy I felt sorry for. She was a sweet kid. I felt sorry for her, end quote. Christie allegedly offered Maloney some of his late wife's clothes because she was essentially homeless. And Mm. Maloney allegedly later told the attendant of the Edgware Road toilet that she had been to Christie's home to collect the outfits, but had been thrown out by his landlord. She also told a postman in the Lon- in a London pub that she had finally met a man who was presumed to be Christy, who had offered her a place to stay in Ladbroke Grove. Mm. Christy later claimed that Kathleen propositioned him on the street and, quote, I walked away, but she followed and pushed into my house. I asked her to leave, but she went into the kitchen and began to undress. All right, I thought. If ever a woman deserved to die, you do, end quote. Oh, God. Also, no! Nah, no. In this house, we are not going to stigmatize sex workers, but also like absolutely the fuck not. People don't deserve to die. Yeah. Like, fuck off. So then in his unpublished notes, Christie wrote that in their struggle, Maloney fell forward and he grabbed onto the back of her sweater to prevent her from hitting her head. But, quote, apparently I caused her death at the same time. apparently in her drunken state she no doubt became unconscious quickly indeed end quote which like fuck off yeah however what he actually did to maloney was what he did to all of his victims he gassed strangled raped her and had a cup of tea with her body seated across from him at the table the next morning before diapering and hiding her corpse alongside nelson's in the alcove behind the cupboard and then he wallpapered over the alcove oh geez sadly because nobody ever reported Maloney missing, there was no investigation into her disappearance. Yeah, I mean, we see that more and more with these serial killers that specifically target sex workers. Yeah, yeah. So the following month, Christie went to a cafe where he met 26-year-old Hectorina McLennan, who was living in London with her boyfriend Alex Baker. And all three of them met up on several occasions after this, and Christie let McLennan and Baker crash at his home, 10 Rillington Place, while they were looking for a place to live themselves. Some sources said that he was actually offering to sublet the apartment to the couple, and that he may have been doing that. Um, But regardless, Christie met McLennan on her own and persuaded her to come back to his flat, where he gassed, strangled, and raped her as he had his other victims. And then stashed her body in the alcove as well and put the wallpaper back over the cupboard that concealed the alcove. Mm. Later, he convinced Baker, who came to Rillington Place looking for McLennan, that he had not seen her and kept up this charade for several days, meeting him regularly to see if he had any news of McLennan's whereabouts and also helping him search for her. Wow. Yeah. What a piece of shit. Yes. However... Christy was also kind of getting backed into a corner here because his debt was strongly increasing and so was the terrible odor coming from his apartment because of these dis- yeah, decomposing bodies. Yeah, you can only bodies. fucking imagine. He killed his his wife in... Because we've got four bodies in this house at this... Or three bodies in this house? Four bodies in this house at this point. Like, we got his wife's body under the floorboards from December and then he's got... We've got three in the alcove. We've got three in the alcove, Yeah. 
So by March 20th, 1950, Christie had run out of money and finally moved out of Rillington Place, at which point he posed as his landlord and defrauded a couple out of three months worth of rent in an illegal subletting scheme. Wow. The landlord figured this out and threw the couple out within 24 hours. And with 10 Rillington Place empty, the landlord permitted the upstairs tenant, Beresford Brown, who was one of the, like, he was the husband of this black couple that Christy said was, like, terrorizing his, his wife. wife uncomfortable. Yes, yes. Fucking bullshit. It's this, that's who this is. So the landlord allowed Beresford to use Christie's old kitchen while it was empty. Okay. So while Beresford, oh, no. while Brown was putting up a shelf for his radio on March 24th, 1953, so four days after Christie runs out and flees, uh, Brown finds peeling wallpaper over a <gasps> hole in the wall. Oh, don't take it down. He took it down. No. And he found the secret alcove. With the bodies inside. Oh, and you just projectile vomit. After I can that. only imagine that can I can't like obviously the terrifying sight, but also that smell must be just unforgettable. Yes, though I will say a couple things like the poetic justice of Christy clearly being a racist, and the dude that he's being racist against is the one that he is the one that finds this out. But it also didn't seem like he tried to hide it in any way. Like, he just ran. Like, if he was trying to really, like, cover his tracks, he would have done something with the bodies, but just didn't. He panicked and he ran, yeah. Yeah. Um, he chose flight. But um, also, I think it's interesting that Christy later on said that his wife, to the police, said that his wife was being terrorized by the Browns. And, like, as if to, I don't know, like... Uh, to me, that gives me the vibe of not only is he racist, but he's trying to make it sound like Brown Brown can't be like that his testimony can't be trusted. Does that make yeah, sense? Maybe. So yeah. I, I just I don't I don't like this guy. I just call yeah, me crazy. You know what? Neither do I. Yeah. But yeah, so Brown immediately called the police who came and given the previous murders that had been committed there. They finally do a thorough search, which reveals not only Nelson Maloney and McLennan's bodies walled off in the cupboard, but also Ethel's corpse hidden under the parlor floorboard and First and Edie's bodies buried in the garden. Yeah. So a citywide manhunt began immediately. And on March 31st, Christy, who in that relatively short amount of time had blown through the money and become a vagrant... He was found under the Putney Bridge in London and arrested after a police constable recognized him from a Metropolitan Wanted poster. Mm. Metropolitan Police Wanted poster, excuse me. So he confessed to the crimes, including that of Beryl Evans, although he never admitted to the murder of Geraldine. But he said that Timothy had strangled the child with a tie. Why did he okay. know that Timothy strangled her with a tie? Timothy didn't even uh. know he strangled her with a tie. Yeah, exactly. So he thought he was in the sewer. Yeah. So in 1953, he. So how do I put this? It was always believed that again, Christie must have murdered the baby because they were just like, how could there be two killers living at this exact same address? Yeah. Um. But yeah. So Christie willingly made statements about four of the murders, but he had explanations for all of them saying that Ethel's murder had been a mercy killing, like I had said before, and that his other victims were just sex workers, and they had been aggressive and had taken advantage of him, and that drove him to defend himself. Then stop going to sex work. Or better yet, how about we just not stigmatize them? Yeah. That, I mean, it's a wild idea, but I think it might work. I mean, yeah, but I also don't trust that from him. No, so abso his, oh, absolutely he not. He needs to just stop. Yeah. However, authorities also noticed that his confessions were full of lies and contradictions. No. Yeah, I know. And when they confronted him with the evidence of the corpses found in the garden, he admitted to committing those murders as well. And just literally was like, yeah, I did it. Like, he, he had nothing to hide. Yeah. So then on June 22nd, 1953, his trial began at the central criminal court of england and wales old bailey is what it's called 
And that's mm-hmm. the same court in which Timothy Evans had been tried three years earlier for the murder of Geraldine and by association Beryl. However, at this point, Christie is only being tried for the murder of Ethel. Um, his defense counsel had entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity and were using the other murders to support this insanity plea. Okay. So they were brought in in that regard, but that's it. So the prosecution countered that his concealment of the crimes after the fact showed an appreciation of the wrongfulness of his acts. And psychiatrists acting on behalf of the prosecution stated that Christie was or had a, quote, hysterical personality, but was actually sane. So Mm -hmm. the judge then instructed the jury to consider only whether Christie was insane at the time at which he had killed his wife, which was the charge under deliberation. And the trial lasted only four days. And after the jury deliberated for just an hour and 20 minutes, they rejected the insanity plea and found him guilty. Mm. He was then sentenced to death and did not appeal his conviction. And while awaiting execution, he was visited by only two people. One was his old army friend, Dennis Haig, who had fought alongside him in World War I. And the other was his sister, Phyllis Clark. Remember, he was one of seven. Oh, yeah. So only one sister. Yes. So just over two weeks after he was convicted, on July 15th, 1953, Christie was hanged at Pentonville Prison in London by the same executioner who had killed Timothy Evans. And Mm. after being prepared for his hanging, Christie complained that his nose itched and the executioner allegedly told him, quote, it won't bother you for long. Oh, (laughs) that's amazing. Like, I was like, damn. I would just punch him in the nose. Like, yeah, does it itch now? So, in 1954, Rillington Place was renamed Rustin Clothes because so many people were, like, obsessed with it in a disrespectful way. Yeah. Then it was ultimately demolished over the course of the 1970s. I would hope yes. so. Christie's house, number 10, was demolished in October 1970. The entire street had to remain under police guard until it had been demolished and the rubble removed because... There were people that were, like, trying to remove any building debris belonging to Number 10 for souvenirs. Yeah, that's that's Gross. The, the fucked up. Gross. Gross. Yeah. Let's not do that. So following Christie's trial, there was an investigation made into Timothy Evans's conviction. After 11 days, it was determined he had killed his wife and daughter, despite the fact that, again, Christie had admitted to the police that he had killed Beryl. Yeah. Two years later, an attempt was made to launch another investigation, and extensive evidence was produced to suggest that the first investigation had not only been rushed, but that the results had been altered to support the official version, which, again, people say or suspect was, at the very least, coerced, yeah, but very likely completely falsified. Yep. Um, but that the results had been altered to support this version and to avoid questioning the methods by which the police had gotten Timothy's conviction or confession. Mm -hmm. So in 1965, an inquiry into this case was conducted, which concluded that Timothy had strangled his wife, but not his daughter. And because he had been tried and hanged for killing Geraldine, his daughter, but not Beryl, his wife, he was given a posthumous Royal pardon in 1966. In 2003, the Home Office cleared Timothy Evans of all charges and awarded ex gratia payments to his family, specifically because that was all that was left, his last surviving siblings, his sister Eileen Ashby and his half-sister Mary Westlake, as compensation for the miscarriage of justice. Mm. This dude did not get justice for over 50 years. Yeah. And he died because of this. Yep. However... Because we're going to still be angry. In 2004, the Court of Appeal refused to consider overturning his convictions due to the costs and resources that would be involved. That's fucked up. Yeah, it is fucked up. It is your court that fucked this entire investigation. Exactly. Exactly. So you need to be held financially and... And uh, just morally responsible. Again, Yeah. this man still has a conviction because you don't want to spend the money to wave it like it just it doesn't yeah it doesn't make sense no um but on the pop culture side of things there have been a lot of works in pop culture inspired by this case docu-series documentaries um even uh australian artist brett whiteley made christie's crimes the subject of a series of paintings while he was living in london in the 1960s 
Okay. But we're going to we're going to touch on some highlights. So, in 1961, Sir Ludovic Kennedy, a journalist who's probably best known for his coverage of wrongful convictions, particularly Timothy Evans and his trial, as well as he dug back into the case of the kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr., baby Lindbergh. Okay. Yeah. Um, he published a book on Christie's crimes titled 10, spelt out T-E-N, Rillington Place. Mm-hmm. It has a 4.16 out of 5 on Goodreads and was seen at the time as one of the strongest arguments against the death penalty, which Kennedy was among those who influenced the United Kingdom to ultimately abolish in 1969. Mm, Evans's conviction and subsequent, um, like, proof of innocence or whatever also was a key factor in the UK abolishing the death penalty. Okay. So also in 1969... Howard Brenton's play, Christie in Love, which was about Christie's murders and psychological issues, premiered. It's been revived several times, including one in 1972 starring Colin Baker, who played the controversial sixth iteration of every Brit and Tumblr user's favorite series, Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the 1960s, filmmakers did try to make a movie about the case, but it was considered still too disturbing for British audiences. In fact, according to the Hollywood Citizen News, the UK also had a law prohibiting the film, uh, a, any film to be made about a real-life murder before 50 years had passed. Wow. Yes. That wouldn't fly here. No, it wouldn't. Didn't fly there either because the law was changed and it allowed filming of a movie titled 10 Rillington Place 110, or 10, god damn it. Yeah. Um, to begin in 1970 it was based on kennedy's novel which at this point had been out for a decade Mm -hmm. and it premiered in 1971 and it stars richard attenborough as christie john hurt as timothy evans and judy gleason as beryl evans and it was directed by richard fleischer who is probably best known for the films Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea and a little movie called the boston strangler Oh, look at that. Yeah. So yeah, when you well said done. the address of this case, I was like, okay, that's how I know this yes. case because I know the movie 10 Rillington Place. Yes. Yeah. So in an interview with the Times of London on May 18, 1970, Attenborough said of the role, quote, I do not like playing the part, but I accepted it once without seeing the script. I've never felt so totally involved in any part as this. It is a most devastating statement on capital punishment, end quote. But one fun fact you know how the original 10 Rillington Place was demolished in yeah. the 70s? Well, the reason it was demoed in October 1970 and not sooner was because they delayed it until filming had been completed so it could be used for the movie. Those exterior shots are 10 Rillington Place. Shit. Yes. Just the exterior stuff, not just, all the interior yes, stuff. Yes, just the exterior because it had been gutted inside to pr- to stop those souvenir hunters I told you yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. So the interior shots were done inside number seven, Rillington Place. Oh, wow. So still like on location. Yes. And literally as soon as the movie crews and equipment had been removed, demolition crews went in under police guard and like tore it down. Like literally as soon as they had cleared out. Yeah. So also the prologue of the film states, quote, this is a true story. Whenever possible, the dialogue has been based on official documents, end quote. So they kept Mm. it super true to the story. And it has a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb, an 86% Google score, and a 62% tomato, percent tomato meter rating with an 85% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. It was originally like it got mixed reviews when it first came uh-huh. out, but it has since become like a very well-known movie. Yeah. And it is loved by audiences. So you can watch it for free on Tubi, Vudu, and the Roku channel. Okay. And then in November 2016, a three-part miniseries remake of the movie, just titled Rillington Place, premiered on the BBC, and it is about to be your favorite new series. Is it? Yes. It stars Tim Roth, who people know from like movies like Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs. He's in the new She-Hulk series. Uh-huh. Um, he plays Christy. Okay, sure, fine. But then it also stars Samantha Morton from The Walking Dead as oh, Ethel okay. Christie. And Jodie Comer from Killing Eve, Free Guy, Star Wars, etc. Mm-hmm, as Beryl mm-hmm. Evans. Well then. Well then. 
It has a 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb, a 78% Google score, and an 83% tomato meter rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And you will have to pay to watch it, but you can on Prime Video, YouTube, or Apple TV. And it's, I think, three episodes, I said? Yeah. All right. But that is the story of John Reginald Christie, the monster of Rillington Place, the milk toast murderer, the overall, like, just shitty fucking dude. Yeah. Just masterpiece of shit. Yeah. Yes, that's the very same. That's the one. Well, he sucks. He does suck. Like, what a, what a shitty guy. Yeah, I don't like him. No. Bye, bitch. Bye, bitch. Um, but yeah, that's a very interesting story. And I don't know why it didn't click in my head before you said the address. Well, I think that's the point. People knew the yeah. address better than they knew that. Because, like, I mean, I think you remember a housing complex filled with bodies i i mean yeah. this dude was soft spoken he was the milk toast murderer like you know what i mean yeah but it's also funny that um another like huge case in the uk is um uh the fred and rose west yeah and there's a lot of emphasis on their address as well because something similar yeah. happened with the burying of bodies there the 25 cromwell exactly so like it's another one that like you know the address Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's wild. It's fucking creepy. Crazy, it's fucked man. up. It is. It is. It People is. suck. We don't, don't suck. Oh, oh, thank you for that. including me in that. I said just you. <laughs> we don't. Oh, she said we. My my cat we. is sitting next to me. Mimu, she said we. She's like, feed me and then we'll see about that. <laughs> yes. Don't say the F word. Oh, no, I can say the F Years word. I just hurt. can't say the D word. Oh, yes. That's yes. True. Yes. Um, Get your minds out of the gutter. Mm, Don't talk to my uh, pussy like that. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on our website, which is crimeculturepodcast.tumblr.com. We have a bunch of social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Patreon. Join our Patreon as little as a dollar, as much as whatever you want. You can vote on episodes, uh, get episodes early, stuff like that. Um... Thanks for all the Spotify wrapped. It means a lot. If you want to give us, you know, a rating and review on wherever you're listening, that would be super helpful. We love it. Yeah. Very um, much appreciated. Very, like, very much. It helps us out a lot, believe it or not. Yes. And gives us a little morale boost. Yeah, that too. It makes, I mean, at the very, at its very core, like it makes, it makes, I, I mean, just in general, like paying somebody a compliment do that more. It's the season of giving. If you can't give things to people, give them a compliment. Like just, just yeah. like Some I kind words go a long way. Kind words go a long way. Like truly, like you never know. You never know what somebody might be going through. And I know it's like sounds like a broken record. Everybody says it, but being showing just a little bit of kindness to somebody, you never know what that might do to their entire day or their entire outlook. And it costs nothing. It does. That's the best part. It's free. It is. Who doesn't love uh, free things? Something else that is free. If you like us and you want to talk to us more and see pictures of our cats, uh, yes. you can join our Discord. Discord is like a like a group messaging app that um, it's free to download. Yeah. And whatever. Um, and you can talk to us and other people that are in our lovely community that we enjoy talking to. And mm -hmm. you just got to shoot us a DM. And we'll get you in there. You're you're in. We'll let you in. And I would yeah. like to apologize to our current Discord members because, as I said at the beginning of this episode, um, I've been working since the Monday before Thanksgiving and yeah. have not stopped. I put in something like 56 hours just the week of Thanksgiving. It's right. You have so many cats to catch I up on. I have so many cats to catch up on. I'm sorry for being MIA. But I promise you, I'm not ignoring you. I don't dislike you. And I do have that fear that you will think this. So I'm putting it out here now. We like you very much. One might even say love. Yeah, we're all good. I mean, I, I would hope so. But I mean, I'm, I'm, I know I'm all good with you. <laughs> no, I mean, with our, with our group, with our friends. We have fun in there, though. We really do. We've got book recommendations. We've got show recommendations. We've got a fuck. We are drowning in cats. Drowning in puss. Love it. Um. It's just, it's a great time, and you are cordially invited. Our Patreon patrons get a special channel 
Yes. Um, that Secret only they Secret. have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's a fun time. It's a fun time. It's a great. It's a great little thing that we've got going. So yeah, if you want to be a part of it, just just slide into our DMs or email let us, us what have you, and we'll let you in. CrimeCulturePod at gmail dot com mm-hmm. is our email. That would be us. And um, I think that's gonna be it. I'm right. I'm I'm good. I'm 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 fresh to death. I'm I'm here. Tight, tight. Dope. All right. Rad. Sick. We will see you. <laughs> oh, yes. Get vaccinated. Uh, boosted. Uh, yeah, get yeah, boosted. Yeah, do all that stuff. Flu shot. It helps. Done. COVID. Yeah, do it. Done. Get it all. Fucking Be nice to each up. other. Mask up. Yes. Pay your compliments. Vote. Mask up. What? Vote. <laughs> vote if you still have to vote for something. I don't know. If you're a Patreon it's patron, a you'll Georgia need to vote. Georgia Senate runoff, right? Yeah, sure. That's happening. I don't know when because I don't live in Georgia. And unfortunately, I'm not very well. But... You know, just right. just do that. And and what are some other things? Always take your vitamins. Okay. Pee after sex. We're gonna see you next Tuesday. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>